There's nothing more beautiful in life. Uh, there's no depth of, of joy that one can experience that is better, more profound, more enduring than being broken before the Lord. To, to just come to the end of yourself. And you just lay all the pieces there before the Lord. And you say, God, put it together any way you want. It's really until, until we get to that point where we say enough of self, enough of my own ambitions, enough of my own dreams, enough of my own control. And we get to the point where we say, Lord, we don't want it anymore. Only then are we really pliable in God's hands. Only when the vessel that we've, been, we've created has been shattered can the Lord put it together into the masterpiece that He has planned for us. And there's so, what chokes me up about that is not the pain of being broken, though frequently that's painful. But it's the beauty of what God can do with the, the, the vase once it's broken. When you yield and you surrender and you die to self, you say, enough of me, all of you. God can put together something so beautiful. And it doesn't matter at all how ugly the vase was before it got broken. In fact, sometimes the more broken the vessel was, the more wasted your life seemed, the farther down it went. It's almost as though the contrast is more beautiful the way the Lord can put it together. And you look at it and you say, God, how did you pull that off? How did you take this and make that? And that's just the beauty of God's grace. And the most fundamental thing that God drives at in all creation is showing off His grace, His marvelous ability to take this broken thing and make this beautiful thing out of it. And He shows Himself off. That's what He likes to do. And I don't, this doesn't have anything to do with anything I wanted to say this morning. It's just coming out of my heart. And maybe that you're here this morning. Maybe you're clinging on to that old vessel, that old thing, that old vase that, that you're trying to manufacture on your own. And you're trying to make it beautiful. You're trying to make it strong. You're trying to show it off. You're trying to make something of your life. You want the control. You want the power. You want to be in the driver's seat. You want to achieve this and you want to achieve that. And you let God in a little bit, but you never sell out. I just want to encourage you to see this, that whatever you're going to do with your life, it will... It compares to nothing what the Lord could do if you just give Him all the pieces. Let it shatter and give Him all. Or maybe you're here this morning and you are broken. And you're wondering how this thing is ever going to get pieced back together again. Because right now it looks so screwed up that you don't see how anyone could do anything with it. I want you to know that that's exactly the position the Lord looks for. Now can be the beginning of the time when he begins to put the piece upon piece, begins to reconstruct the beautiful thing that he can call our life. And he can weave all the failures, weave all the sin, can weave all the mistakes. He can weave it into this beautiful tapestry, and I don't know how he does it, but he does. The only thing that he asks of you is to let, let him do it. Uh, okay. The worship this morning just did that. It just evoked that. And Debbie's song just sort of brought that together. When we worship the Lord, we just become empty before the Lord. Vessels for the Lord to flow through. Losing ourselves in worship. I, I pray that this becomes a church that knows what it is to lose itself in the love of the Lord. To just be sold out. 
to, to know what it is to sense the presence of God and to abandon yourself and all your cares, your concerns, your attentions, your, your, your worries. Abandon yourself just to say, Lord, this half hour is yours, unreservedly yours. Nothing else matters. And to worship Him. And that's when the Spirit of God comes down and it begins to jar us and turn us and mold us and make us. And I appreciated the worship this morning. Okay, this, I, I want to finish up um, my uh, series on bringing about change in our life. And this morning we're going to, I'll read it, the text that we've had as our central text this whole time. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Where Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit. Does someone have a Kleenex? I'm, I'm going to be going all sermon long if I don't get a Kleenex here. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Just bring it up. Come on down. I should be like that guy on The Price is Right. I will offer $3 if you have a Kleenex. And do you have, you have a Debbie? I, I want it to be you know, non-used. <laughs> That's my sister Debbie, by the way. Appreciate her being here. This is an aside, but uh, uh, if you weren't there, you should have been there last Sunday night at the Ojibwe Park because we, a number of people in the church went there and we had this wonderful time. Uh, there's a 50s band there and we had what we'd call a slop hop because the, 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 the grass was just complete mud and we were bopping to 50s music up to our knees in mud. And it was just a blast. It was like mud wrestling, only mud, mud dancing. It was... Uh, Okay, now, that leads right smoothly into Galatians uh, 5.22. For the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this morning we're going to talk about self-control and, and wrap up this whole series. Lord, I pray that you take your word and anoint it and pour out your spirit upon it. Lord, be present in the same way you've been present during the worship service. Lord, take these words that are inadequate, they fall short. I can't make them big enough, I can't make them energetic enough to do the work of bringing about change, Lord. Your Spirit has to do that. Help me to rest in in the sufficiency of your Spirit and allow you to do what you want to do this morning. We ask in your name. Amen. There was a lady I knew, and this is just by way of, of kind of review here. A lady I knew some time ago... In a church that I was assistant pastor at, her name was Mrs. Zimmerman, and Mrs. Zimmerman was a healthy-looking lady. How do you say it? What's the politically correct term? She was rather large, uh, rather large. She was very, very large, very large woman, and she had a problem. And it's a problem that's pretty normal for people to get involved in, whether your problem is weight control or whatever. But her problem was this: she didn't like the fact that she was overweight, and she was very overweight. She didn't like that fact. Uh, socially, she didn't like what it did. Uh, she was very lonely. She, you know, it, it, did, it did something negative on her self-esteem. But she also didn't like the fact that she, she believed that uh, her being in this unhealthy situation uh, was something that God didn't want her to, to have. That it really wasn't godly. It wasn't a good testimony for her to, her to be at least this much overweight. And as I said, she was very overweight. I think you get that point now. Well, what would happen is this. She would look at herself in the mirror and, and, and she'd get depressed. She'd try to go on diets and, and, and they wouldn't work. And then she'd get more depressed and she'd feel guilty for being overweight and she'd get more depressed. And whenever she got depressed, she ate. And so she'd eat 
to help her depression, and the eating would make her more overweight, which would make her more depressed, which would make her eat more, which would make her more overweight, which would make her depressed, which would make her eat more. And you see the vicious cycle. And she had in her mind this, uh, this idea that she shouldn't be this way, she ought not to be this way, it's bad for her to be this way. In fact, she had people sometimes tell her, you know, you know the Bible talks against gluttony, and, and when I see you go for that third chocolate cake, is that really what the Lord would want? You shouldn't be doing that, you ought to curb your eating, control yourself. Get a grip on yourself. But see, as we've seen throughout this whole series on change, change can't come from someone telling you it ought to be there. Self-control, like love, joy, peace, and patience, isn't the kind of thing you can have because someone says you ought to have self-control. Get a a lid on it. Get a grip on it. Reminds me of... uh, I shouldn't even bring this up, but but that that one uh, movie a long time ago called Airplane. Do you remember that movie Airplane? I don't know if you like Leslie Nielsen or not, but I, I find it just to be hilarious. It's my kind of humor. And there's that one scene in, in the movie Airplane. If you didn't watch the movie, then you won't get this at all. You had to be there, but, but if you didn't, just follow along. The, the plane they find is out of control. The, the pilot died or something. I forget what happened. But this lady starts going berserk. Remember that scene? She starts going nuts. We're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to lose it. She just starts going nuts. And the guy comes and says, get a grip on yourself. No, it's a nun first. You know, ma'am, calm down. Calm down. You've got to calm down. It's not working. So a guy moves her aside and, and says, here, I can handle this. And he starts shaking her real hard. Calm down. You've got to get a grip on yourself. Get a control. It's not working. So another guy comes and says, here, I can handle that. And he starts slapping her on the face. Come on, get a grip on yourself. Get some control. And then the camera shows that in the back of him, there's a guy with a crowbar. And behind him, a person with a baseball bat. And finally, a guy with a bazooka. And they're all just waiting in line to help this lady get control of her life. But it's not likely to work if she was scared before. Hitting her heart isn't going to make a difference. And that's humorous, but so often our approach to change in life is just like that. We think that if we just say it loud enough, if we just say it scary enough, if we just say it as many times as possible, if we put enough threats with it or enough rewards with it, we can bring about change in people's lives. But that, of course, does not work. What transforms us, and this has been the theme throughout this eight-week study, what transforms us is grace. Grace transforms us, and nothing else will. When Mrs. Zimmerman finally got to the point where she began to experience, experience the truth, not just know it in her head, but to begin to experience the truth that as she was, in all of her largeness, As she was, she was loved by God. And that whether she was overweight or underweight or right on the money didn't affect God's basic attitude towards her. That her worth, her value, her dignity as a human being just didn't hang upon what she looked like. And when she began to realize that fact and began to accept herself in her largeness, that began to bring about a change in the way she felt about herself, the way she loved herself, and the way she loved God. And you know what happened? She began to want to, from the inside now, want to lose some weight. Now, she never became a twiggy, but she got a little bit more control of her life because change comes from the inside. And the theme that we've seen in the last eight weeks, and we'll see it again this morning, is this. If you want to become a more loving person, and we all want that, The most essential thing we can do is come to see, not just in an intellectual way, but in a heartfelt way, see the love of God towards us amidst all of our unlovingness. Accept the fact, not condone the fact, but accept the fact that you don't love enough, and you'll never love enough. 
You don't love unconditionally. But rest in that sin, in that shortcoming, and in that fault. Rest in the love of God towards you. Or do you want joy in your life? The most essential thing you can do to get joy in your life is to quit trying to have joy when you don't. Quit trying to pretend happy when you're not. And in the midst of your depression, see the joy of the Lord over you. Or peace, or patience, or kindness, or self-control. Change comes when we rest as we are in who Jesus is until we can, in the midst of all of our faults, Rest in the grace of God. We'll never grow out of our faults. Until we can accept ourselves in our failures, in the love of God, in the grace of God, we'll never grow out of our failures. We'll be in the same old Mrs. Zimmerman rut all of our lives. There has to be an unconditional affirmation point in our life, which doesn't depend on anything we do or don't do, or anything we have or don't have, or however we appear or don't appear. And that unconditional starting point is the grace of God, which says, as you are. And as the Holy Spirit makes that real and concrete, He makes it transforming. And we begin to change from the inside. We find that, as a matter of fact, love is is there. It's a fruit. You didn't strive for it, but as you walk in the Spirit and follow the Spirit as He makes Christ real to you, a fruit grows. Look at that. I'm more loving. And maybe you don't notice it right away because you're not being intentional about the loving behavior. You're being intentional towards Jesus Christ and love grows out of that. And all of a sudden you realize you have it. You're not as ordinary as you used to be. You're not as unloving as you used to be. You're not as depressed as you used to be. You're not as anxious and worried as you used to be. But it's a byproduct. It comes from chasing Jesus Christ. Invest in Jesus Christ and change comes. The same is true with self-control. Self-control, the, the Greek term is ekratia. And it basically means four things, or it has four basic connotations. Let me just run through those four connotations. What does self-control mean? First of all, it means control of your body. Being able to control your body. We live in a culture, we live in, and in, in this is part of the deception, what we've seen is the deception of the flesh, the lie of the world around us. We live in a place that's saturated with this message, that if your body wants it, you've got to have it. If your body hungers for it, you've got to feed it. If your body's thirst for it, you've got to drink it. That whatever your body feels is right. You've got a right to it, you owe it to yourself to do it. In fact, our culture kind of celebrates a lack of control when it comes to bodily impulses. The pointer sisters. I'm so excited. I just can't hide it. You know, I'm about to lose control and I think I like it. I like it. I won't you. I won't you. I'm about to lose control and I think I like it. And a lot of songs are like that. I'm just being kind of so overcome with your sensuality, so overcome with your beauty, so overcome with this moment. Let's just abandon ourselves to the passion. Forget right or wrong. A lot of songs are about that, especially country songs. You know, well, let's just go with the fling. <laughs> okay, I, I just offended some country folk, didn't I? Okay, KDWB is not much better. But a lot of it's about abandoning yourself to the moment. This is why abstinence is almost a swear word. You can talk about safe sex, but you can't talk about no sex. Why, that's, that, that's primitive, it's, it's prehistoric, it's Victorian, it's offensive, it's rude, it's bad, it's crude. Give all condoms in the high schools. That's the solution to things. But don't, don't talk about abstaining. The idea is, if, if you want it, you've got to get it. It's no big deal, just do what you feel. If it feels right, just don't think twice. I forget how it goes. James Taylor's song. That whole theme, you got the, you got the point. Ekratia means this, though. 
against that message which is saturating us all the time, against that, ekratia, self-control, says this. My body doesn't control me, I control my body. I rule my body, my body doesn't rule me. My body is captive to me, my principles, my morality. It serves me, I don't serve my body. I don't let my body rule me. Ekratia means that when you want to go for that third Reese's peanut butter cup, as a matter of principle, you say no. When you want to hop in the sack with Mac Jack and, and your body wants to do that, you say no. It's just not right. It's not, it, it, it's not what God would want. And as a matter of principle, you say no. When you want to sleep in an extra six hours, <laughs> your body says, oh, come on, I need it, I want it, I got to have it. And you say no. As a matter of principle, no. It says, I want that. I want, I want one more drink. I want one more this, one more that. And you, as a matter of principle, say no. And the body whines. The body whines. This is a, a spoiled little kid growing up in this culture, spoon-fed. Our body whines. No, I, I just want one more peanut butter cup. Yeah, you be fair to me. Oh, it's just a one-night thing. No one's looking. No one will ever find out. Come on. You owe it to yourself. Or you might deny your body one day, and the next day it says, now, now you owe it to yourself to celebrate it by doing what you just gave up doing. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Ekratia means you say no. You spank this little kid. You put it in line. But no, there's nothing wrong with bodily appetites and impulses and sexuality and all that. Don't ever get that idea. But when they rule our life, they are wrong. When that's the highest principle of our behavior and our thinking, they are wrong. There should be a higher principle. And ekratia means you tell your body what to do. It doesn't tell you what to do. You run your life by principles. Self-control means ruling your body. It also means ruling your emotions. And compulsions. Again, this is an area where, uh, where uh, there's a common attitude that you can't help the way you feel. You just are that way. You're always this angry. You just happen to be this kind of compulsive person. You go into the shopping store with a credit card and you just don't know what happens. Something, you know, you, just, you, you tell your wife uh, that uh, uh, you don't know what happened. I, I, you forgot why you bought all this stuff. But it, at the time, it seemed like the right thing to do. Uh, and, and something overcomes. You just can't help it. You can't help being depressed. Ekratia means you tell your emotions their proper jurisdictions. They don't rule you. It's not about pretending like you're not scared when you're scared and you're not depressed when you're, when you're depressed. It just means saying, here's your parameters and you're not going to ruin my life. I may be sad, but I'm not going to let sadness ruin my life, rule my life. I may have phobias, but I'm not going to let them control my life. I may have anxieties, but I'm not going to let them tyrannize over me. And self-control means you look at some compulsive areas in your life, whether it's gambling or spending or, or what have you, and you say, I'm not going to let them rule me. The Bible says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast in the freedom of the Lord. And just as a matter of principle, because I don't want to be under bondage to anything, I'm going to come against this because I don't want to be a slave. The Christian is no one's slave, or at least need not be anyone's slave. Ekratia means you rule your body. Ekratia means you rule your emotions. Ekratia means, and this is in some ways the most fundamental, that you rule your mind. Self-control. You control your mind. You say what you're going to think. You determine what's in the content of your brain, nothing else. And this one is really weird because it doesn't occur to most people ever that the contents of your mind is something that you should try to be intentional about. That the contents of your mind is something that you should work on. 
I don't know why that's the case, but I think it's because what goes on in our mind is private. No one knows. No one ever sees. No one can please it, though some people try. And because it's not public, we think it's not important. You know, we just live with this assumption. It's part of the deception of the flesh. We live with the assumption that only what people can see and what people can judge and comment on is really important. And what goes on in my brain, you never know. You never know what I'm thinking, unless my smile or something gives it away. But otherwise, you never know what I'm thinking. And so it doesn't occur to most people to, to, to legislate the content of their mind, to say, I want to have control over what goes on in my mind. But you see, that's a tragic mistaken notion because you can try to reform your behavior you can try to reform your attitudes you can try to reform your disposition you can try to change yourself in all possible ways but if you don't address the thinking that goes on behind it you're not likely to be very successful the bible says that as you think in your heart so are you as you think in your heart so are you so are are you and it's an insight that a lot of psychologists have discovered recently, but it's been in the Bible all along. That's why the Bible stresses transformation by the renewing of our mind. Think of it like this. Nature abhors a vacuum. That's what the, uh, that's what the scientist people tell us. Nature abhors a vacuum. And if you're not intentional about what goes on in your mind, if you're not intentional about, about, about what fills your brain... Well, nature, circumstances, conditions, and upbringings, and TV and media is going to determine what goes on in your brain. You're going to have your mind filled with all sorts of untrue things, all sorts of lies. What will determine what you think? What will determine what your mind is like? And therefore, what your behavior is like, because your behavior follows from your mind. What will determine that? It's not you on the basis of principles, but it will be the TV, or it will be your memories, it will be your upbringing, it will be the newspaper, it will be the assumptions of the age. And that's what's going to go on in your mind. So many Christians ask this question, how is it that I can be regenerate in my heart and love the Lord and yet have, make no headway trying to get, get, change this area of my life, making some headway and in, in, in bringing about an alteration? How is that? How come my heart is so right and yet my behavior is so wrong? And the answer, in a nutshell, is this. If you've got a polluted mind, you're going to have a polluted life. You're going to, have a, you're going to manifest that in polluted behavior. Ekratia means that you begin to become intentional about what goes on in your mind. Think of it this way. If you are not intentional about the contents of your mind, there is a spirit in the world today that is intentional about putting false stuff in your mind. What we need to do, and this is what the Bible says, is to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, to take, take every thought captive unto Jesus Christ. What we need to do, and this is, the, this is, I think, the most fundamental dimension of what self-control is, is to declare war on the pollution in our brain, on the way we think, on the way we perceive things, and bring it captive under Jesus Christ. To begin to control the way we think. Because until you do that, it's like trying to, to, steer the ship of a, to steer a ship while someone else is the captain. If you surrender the authority of your brain to the TV and to the media and to every other source outside of the Bible, it's not likely that your life is going to be very biblical. Let me just throw out this exercise, okay? Two little exercises for you, for you, two, two little exercises for you to try. The first one has to do with this, uh, feeling, being in control of what goes on in your mind. Take a truth. What we need to do is to bombard our minds with truth because they're bombarded with lies all the time. 
Take a truth. I don't care what truth it is. Take a truth that's relevant to you, a truth that comes out of Scripture. Maybe you even want to just take a scriptural verse. And this is going to sound really weird because we're not used to being intentional about what goes on in our mind. But, but let's listen to it. Take the truth and begin to affirm it over and over again in your mind. Deuteronomy, I forget the verse, tells us to do this. Take the word of God and hang it on the doorstep, hang it on the refrigerator, hang it in the air, put, put, put it on your forehead, put it on your wrist. Remind yourselves continually of, uh, of the truth of God. And that's what I'm saying. You know, your mind is constantly active. Try not to think for five seconds. I bet you can't do it right now. One, two. See, you're thinking, I, I, I can tell. You're, you're thinking about what's he trying to get at. The mind's always active. Now the question is, what is it chewing on? What is it digesting? What is it absorbing? The material that the world gives it is lies, pollution, stuff that's going to affect our life adversely. Self-control says, no, I'm going to determine what goes on in my mind. And so what you might do is take a verse. The Lord shall give him perfect peace, whose eyes are stayed on him. Isaiah chapter 40. And as you're driving in the car to work, as you're driving home from, from work, as you're maybe doing work, begin to just recite that over again. I have perfect peace in my life. Take what is true and begin to affirm it. What I've been working at for about the last six months is, is this one. I got it out of Galatians 2.20. Life is Christ. Nothing else matters. Life is Christ. Nothing else. Now, is that true? Yes, it's true. Life is Christ. The, the, the fullness of life is Jesus Christ. Nothing else really matters. But do we usually live like that? No. Why? Because though we know it's true, what our mind usually is about is that there's a lot of stuff that matters, and Christ doesn't really matter. So you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Take the truth and begin to say it over and over again. And I'm telling you, there is such freedom there. As I find myself getting anxious about things, I just begin to say, life is Christ, nothing else matters. The fullness of life is Jesus Christ and nothing else matters. And there comes with that a freedom, a liberation. Because the truth begins to be manifested in my mind. Some people think, oh, that's pop psychology. That's, you know, that's just sort of Norman Vincent Peale kind of stuff. Here's the difference between the, the biblical approach to transforming by the renewing of the mind and pop psychology. Pop psychology is based on what you wish you were. Biblical psychology is based on what you, in fact, are. We're not trying to create a reality. We're just trying to get our minds to line up with what is real. I'm not trying to get you to pretend that there's a blue curtain in back of me. I'm just saying, get your mind to realize there's a blue curtain in back of, of me. Why? Because there is a blue curtain in back of me. And so it is. You are a child of God. The peace of God fills you. The love of God fills you. The joy of God fills you. The power of God fills you. The confidence of God fills you. That's already true. But you don't manifest that in your life because your mind's polluted with a bunch of other garbage that tells you that that's a, that that's a lie. You need to declare a war on the brain. War on the brain. Begin to fill yourself with truth. Practice this. See if you can say it 500 times a day. A thousand times a day. When you get tired of one truth, move on to the other truth. Take an area of your life that's particularly weak and vulnerable and fragile and, and like, a, like, a, like a telescope, like a microscope, zero in the Word of God in that particular era, area of your life and then sear it with truth. Just burn it away with truth. Just, are you getting the imagery here? Evaporate it. It shouldn't be there anyways. Okay. I said there was two exercises. The other one I was just going to say was, was it's good as a way of getting control of your body to, this goes back a couple points, should have said it earlier, but Sometimes it's good to fast. We don't preach it on that much, very much anymore. But if for no other reason, fasting is good because you're just telling your body to shut up. Amen. 
There's nothing wrong with that. If, if, if there's no other, I get a lot of value out of it, you know, on a spiritual level and stuff like that. But it, if for no other reason, you just you're taking this little kid and you're disciplining the little kid because it always gets what it wants. So you say no food for a day, and it will go. That's that's fine. We'll go two days. Just put you, what you're doing is you're reorganizing your priorities. You're saying you don't tell me what to do. I tell you what to do, and I'm going to prove it. No food for a day. Amen. It's great. It doesn't feel great, but it's great. <laughs> so how do we acquire this? How do we acquire this kind of self-control? You know, it almost sounds like it almost sounds like a contradiction, doesn't doesn't it? The, the spirit brings about self-control. Because self-control sounds like something you do. I'm going to control myself. And it sounds like a, a self-achievement kind of a thing, a, a self-accomplishment. How can that be the fruit of the Spirit? But it is. And, 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 and let, let me show you why. Self-control basically is this. If you narrow it down, reduce it down, refine it down to its, its, its most fundamental point, self-control is doing whatever you've got to do to acquire a perceived good. Doing whatever you've got to do to acquire something you perceive as good. You have self-control when you need it to acquire something that you perceive as being good. We lack self-control because we don't see what is really good. We see lesser goods as though they were greater goods. We see, for example, following the impulses of our body, which are not bad in and of themselves, but we see that as being a greater good, a more tangible good, then we see moral principles that govern that activity. We lack self-control for that reason. We buy into lies that say, you've got to have this, you've you got to strive for it, you've got to get it some way, and we lack control on it. You buy into the message of this culture that comes through all the time, that sex is something you can't live without, you've got to have it, your life isn't fulfilled unless you have that, your identity is based on it. You buy into that lie, and you know what? It doesn't matter what you think in your head. You're going to find it really hard to control your sex life because there's a fundamental principle operating there. You really believe that without this, life is going to be worthless. And you know in your brain that's not true, but at a fundamental level, that's driving you. So you just can't control it. You really do see it as being something that's good. You don't see the damage of it and the ugliness of it and the sin of it. You see the goodness of it, and that's the deception. And so you can't control it. i got to have that. i got to win that lottery. $110 million. I gotta have it, I gotta have it. Do you see that on TV? Some of these people buying 20, 30, 40. Heck, there some people buying 200, 300, 400 tickets. As though if you improve your odds from 1 in 55 million to 455 million, you've really increased your chances. These people, they couldn't help it. They're just, I gotta win that lottery, I gotta do it. That's a perceived good, and I'll do whatever it takes. I'll do whatever it takes. If it means going beyond my budget, I'm gonna do whatever it takes. Or the person who has a shopping addiction does the same thing. There's a perceived good there. I gotta get that clothing. I gotta have this. I gotta have that. And I don't care if it's beyond my budget. I don't care if I'm gonna get screamed at when I get home. I gotta do it. The alcoholic says, I gotta have that one more drink. The TV alcoholic, and they are, there are those. I just wanna watch one more. Oh, this is the good part. Don't turn off the TV. This is the, you know, it's always the good part. <laughs> Couch potatoes. There are people who are addicted to TV. That's a perceived good, and they do whatever they've got to do and sacrifice whatever they've got to sacrifice to get that acquired good. But see, the Holy Spirit begins to change all that. The Holy Spirit, as we've seen throughout this series, the Holy Spirit works by changing the way we see things. Changing the way we see things. 
And what the Holy Spirit does as He comes to our life is He shows us the beauty of God, the beauty of Jesus Christ. He shows us if we yield, if we allow Him, and if we spend time letting Him do it in devotion, the Holy Spirit paints a picture of Jesus for us that is so attractive that nothing else compares. The Holy Spirit tells us that the one thing we need in life is Jesus Christ. The only thing you've got to have is Jesus Christ. Everything else is negotiable. The only one who can fulfill your life, the only one who's worth striving for, the only one who's worth pursuing, the only one who can make your life complete, the only one who can make you the person that, that you want to be is Jesus Christ. And everything else apart from that is quite irrelevant. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit produces in our lives a hunger for Jesus Christ that's, that's like a, the, the hunger of a, of a, a food-addicted person for food. The, the, the Holy Spirit makes us hungry for Jesus Christ the way a gambler is hung, hungry for gambling or a cocaine addict is hungry for cocaine. The Holy Spirit paints a picture of Jesus Christ that makes us want to live for Him. He shows us that there's no beauty like this beauty. There's no Lord like this Lord. There's no fulfillment like the fulfillment that He gives us. And as that becomes clear... You find the energy to live for God. You find that as a matter of fruit, as a matter of, of recourse, as an outgrowth of chasing Jesus Christ, you all of a sudden have self-control in your life. Because living for Jesus is more beautiful, it's better, it's, it's more fulfilling than not living for Jesus. The pleasure of Jesus Christ is better than the pleasure of sex. And the embrace of Jesus Christ is better than anything all the money in the world could do. And, and, and the way Jesus Christ loves us and wraps his arms around us is better than anything that the best houses and cars in the world could give us. And so we choose him over all else. Why? Because we see. We see that this is the best thing to live for. This is life itself. This is what life's all about. This is fulfillment. Can you for a second imagine what the church of Jesus Christ would look like if Christians were as addicted to Jesus as a gambler is to gambling, as a cocaine addict is to coke, or as a sex addict is to sex, have you ever been addicted and tried to get off of addiction? It's brutal, isn't it? All you think about, I, I gotta have it. I just, I, I, I gotta have it. I, I, you know, and you find ways to sneak it, get it, and just, you know, you just—it's always on your mind. It's always in your brain. It's always in your heart. You gotta get it. Somewhere or other, you're gonna get it. What if, what if Christians were like that about Jesus? I, I gotta have a little bit more of the Lord. I, I just I gotta get closer to Jesus. I I just I, I gotta pray through. I know there's more blessing there, and I just want to celebrate it. I can't contain myself when we worship. I just gotta have more of Jesus. I want the Spirit of God to surround me. I want the Spirit of God to be in me. I just want to yield more and more. I gotta have more of the This is great. That is the direction the Spirit of God leads us into. If we were like that, you wouldn't have there wouldn't be a church in America that'd be empty unless it was a spiritless church, and then they go to a spirit-filled church. There wouldn't, you, you wouldn't have trouble with evangelism. Souls would be, be being saved. The Spirit of God would be moving in a miraculous way because people would have faith to believe that God can move in a miraculous way. It's the kind of faith that transformed the early church. And how does it happen? It happens because Jesus Christ becomes real in our life. Real. You see the good that He is. The trouble is, is that the areas that we lack control on seem more real than Jesus to us. And so we choose that over Jesus. The Spirit of God is there to make Jesus Christ concrete and real to us. And that begins to transform our life on the inside. All the preaching, all the harping, all the Bible verses, all the manipulation in the world will never, ch will never change you in that direction. It's got to be the Spirit of God. You can't... Here's, here's where human effort ends. 
I can't make you want Jesus. That's all there is to it. And everything depends on that. And at this point, we are utterly, utterly, utterly dependent on the Spirit of God. Change comes by seeing Jesus in a concrete, real, vibrant way, as, as in worship this morning. And we can only see Jesus in a concrete, real way when he becomes, when, when the Spirit of God makes him so in our life. And at that point, human effort ends. We need God's grace. We need the Spirit of God to fall. We need God to, the, the Spirit of God to work in our life to show us, make us hungry for Jesus. As the deer pants for the streams of water, Psalms 42 says, so my soul thirsts after you. So thirsty for Jesus, I just, I gotta, I gotta get more. I gotta get more. I gotta drink them. The Spirit of God does that. People can't do it. No one else can do it. We need the Spirit of God here. As a church, we need the Spirit of God. If God's going to fulfill the vision that He's given us for this place, He's going to have to do it by putting in people that hunger and thirst for Him and for the kingdom of God. And if change is going to come in your life, it's going to be the Spirit of God. And all I can do is encourage you to yield, surrender, become that broken vessel we started with. Empty yourself of yourself. Crucify yourself and say, Lord, not my will but thine. And the Holy Spirit begins to put a a desire for him in your life. You chase him and fruit grows as a result of that. Can we stand? And I want to sing as a closing prayer. That song that we ended up our worship service with. Sing it as a prayer. Spirit of the living God. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. That's what we need so desperately. The irony is this. We get in self-control when we lose our self-control and become utterly dependent on the Spirit of God. And let's pray, Lord, fall on us. Fall on this church. Do what you want to do in our life. Do what you want to do in this church. Have your way. And afterwards, if you'd like to pray with somebody, if, if there's areas in your life that you're still hanging on to and you need help getting over with, or whatever the need is in your life, I encourage you to come forward. There'll be people up here who would like to pray with you. You can come forward during the song or after the song. It doesn't matter.